Alleluia, Christ is risen. The Lord is risen indeed. Alleluia, heavenly, gracious, and loving Father, we thank Thee for the gift of Thy love, revealed to the whole world in Thy Son, Jesus Christ. We thank Thee for His life, His death, His resurrection, and we prepare now for His glorious resurrection, uh, uh, ascension into heaven at Thy right hand and for the sending of Thy Holy Spirit. As Jesus Christ, Thy Son, is risen from the dead, may He be risen in our hearts and lives. And may Thy Holy Spirit fall like fire from heaven upon us. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Amen. Welcome, Paulina. So I really have nothing to say today. Um, no, um, I do have a, a question. Please note that our class today, size-wise, is cut in half. Well, why is that? Um, because there are those who are faithful and those who aren't. No, because, um, because really because we have begun that <laughs> we have begun that time of year um, when people's lives uh, supposedly slow down but actually get busier. You know, like Sandra, for example, is you know moving her daughter out of the dorm uh, today. Uh, the housing market is picking up a little bit because of the nice weather, so Joan is out with clients showing them, uh, you know, houses, um, et cetera, et cetera. Um, we skipped the next two months uh, mainly because of my sabbatical, um, but then I kind of wondered about August. I didn't necessarily want to have August uh, if there's going to be two people because it's time. So I was thinking, you know what, we'll have class today. And then we'll go on a, a, a summer vacation, and then we'll come back in September for it. Um, my only fear in doing that, and I already know that in the August one, that Praveen and Karen, where are you going to be? You're going to be in India. You won't be here in August. Well, this is becoming an easy question, but um, my my question is, is if we break for June, July, August. Do I have your word that you'll be committed to returning in September? My one fear of taking a summer break is that it will be easy not to pick it back up come September. Now, I mean, obviously, if you're, you know, your wife leaves you or you, you know, your house gets swept away by, well, with you, I shouldn't even joke about that. It would happen. Um, or, you, you know, I'm, I'm talking within, you, you know, if the Lord calls you home, the second coming of Jesus, those are all good reasons for not returning in September. Okay. But apart from those, um, uh, yeah, apart from those, uh, you know, do you think it's safe, is what I'm asking. I don't want this class to fall apart. I, I hope that you're getting a lot out of it, and that's what you've been telling me. And I actually enjoy uh, teaching it. Um, um, I mean, Bob's questions are annoying sometimes. But overall, you know. Um, and uh, so, um, uh, not quite as annoying as Praveen's, though. So, <laughs> so uh, um, we're in a contest for who can be the biggest thorn in the thorn in my side. <laughs> Reminds me of Paul. Lord, three times I've asked. My grace is sufficient. I really don't think so. <laughs> you know. So, would you, would you commit to coming back? Oh, yes. 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 Okay. Then we will break 
for June, July, and August after today. Okay? <laughs> That's right. Can I tell that joke, or is that all right? Praveen made a, a, a donation, and he jokingly said, uh, you know, here, uh, this is to influence you to uh, cancel August. You, you know, it was just a joke. But then I started actually thinking about it. And then when half the class was only coming today, I said, you know, I don't want to go through all that because it won't be taped and all of that and only have two people here. And then people be like, well, but we missed it. We really want it because it's on the body and blood of Jesus. So, I mean, it, it's, it's a major, you know what I mean? And so people being like, I want to be there and, you know, that kind of uh, just a request in, in that light to yes. keep up momentum and also find it useful. Um, if you could uh, give us the readings for the courses from the, from the beginning so that we can see mm-hmm. in the fall and next year and if yep. you want to keep reading. Because um, I think I missed something that you... Uh, yeah, I gave a list for quite a ways, actually. Yeah, I I did give that list. Um, you do you have and would you resend it to me? So uh, actually, send it to all of us apparently, um, so that we can. Um, I'm pretty sure I have it. Does yeah. that for me go back to the, the beginning of time, or is that yes, it does? Okay. August canceled, and then we'll we'll check on the readings uh, ahead of time. Okay, um, so with that, today we are talking about, the, there is a book I believe you can get online, and I, I will give you the name of it uh, again now. Uh, if you can't find it, I do actually have some copies. It's really a pamphlet book. It's, it's not real thick, um, uh, and it's by Peter Toon, God rest his soul, Peter Toon, T-O-O-N, Toon. Toon. Peter Toon, T-O-O-N. Um, I look, you can look in general, you can Google it, but one way place you might want to look is on a website called the Prayer Book Society, USA or America or I don't know what it, probably USA, but because there's a Canadian Prayer Book Society and it, you know, but prayer, the Prayer Book Society website and you might be able to simply download it, okay? And it's by Peter Toom, and it's called something like the, the Holy Scripture or the Bible or the Scriptures and the Anglican Formularies. There you go. Peter Toom, the Anglican Formularies. Oh, you're, you're definitely not as bad as he is. Yeah. The Anglican Formularies, Peter Toom, the Anglican Formularies and the Holy Scripture. It is, Peter Toon, and I don't mean to equate myself to him. He wrote lots of stuff. I haven't written anything, okay? But Peter Toon and I did not always see eye to eye on on things, though our uh, thesis was the same, that we are biblical Catholicism. Um, But this little book, it's like a, it's more than a pamphlet, but it's less than a full book. I think it's even 100 pages. Yeah. This little book... Um, booklet, yeah. This cute book <laughs> um, really is, I, I think, on this particular topic, maybe the most phenomenal thing out there. I have sh- 
some real disagreements with his lack of emphasis on the apostolic succession in the last part of the book. So when you read that, just keep shaking your head going, oh no, that's not quite far enough, Peter. Okay, aside from that though, this little pamphlet is real, or whatever it is, is really good. So see if you can get it online or order it. And if you can't let me know, I have, that little kid is in the street in a bike. This is why they, oh no, she, is that the sidewalk she's on? Oh, I think she was on the street though. It's the bad thing about cutting down all those trees I can see now out there. And um, so anyway, excellent and really goes along with some of what we are talking about today. Okay, so I, I recommend that highly to you. The Anglican formularies. Our movement, the new reformation that we are in, of which our province, the Anglican Church in North America, is a part, our movement, of course, is grounded in Scripture. And, of course, in the tradition of the church under, script, under the primacy of Scripture. But it's also grounded in the Anglican formularies. So Scripture, of course, holding a place of primacy. Then the tradition of the church. And then particular for us, what's called the Anglican formularies. If you look up, I, I think I've handed this out to you before or quoted it, but I didn't bring it today. Um, it might be in all those papers over there, I don't know. But it's, if you look it up, it's Canon A5. My memory just not working like it used to. Canon A5. of the Church of England. And it might be in here. Nah. Anyway, look it up, Canon A5. I'm going to have to paraphrase it. But it basically says that the doctrine of our church, Anglicanism, and in that particular case, the doctrine of the Church of England, Canon A5, the doctrine of the Church is grounded in Holy Scripture and in the creeds, councils, and fathers of the patristic Church as are agreeable to the said scriptures and in the Anglican formularies. All right, that's a paraphrase of it. You can, if you just Google um, canon... A5, Church of England, it will pop up. So our movement, 
is grounded, of course, in the primacy of Holy Scripture. That's what it is to be Anglican, to be a Bible Catholic. And then under the authority and primacy of Scripture, the tradition of the Church, the ancient creeds, councils, and patristic writings, the writings of the Fathers, the ancient liturgies, etc., but also in the Anglican formularies. We all agree on that, right? Here's the problem. Most people say, right! They have no idea what the Anglican formularies are. They're taking a stand on Scripture, tradition, and the Anglican formularies, but they have no idea what the Anglican formularies are. What's the problem with that? The problem is that if we continue to be theologically illiterate in our new movement, we will be in the same place as the Episcopal Church and the Anglican Church of Canada within a couple of generations. Yep. We need to not only say, we don't want to be part of that, they've left us, we need to be able to, and not just evangelize and plant churches, we need to become a theologically literate people. Now, does everyone have to become, if you're going to see a doctor, does everyone have to be, have a doctor's education or become a surgeon? No. But you do want to get to a point where you know whether or not your doctor is a quack, right? Right? You do want to know something about it, right? Uh, same thing with your car. If you go into a mechanic, even the most honest one, and say, yeah, you know, I don't know anything about cars, it's going to be very hard for that mechanic not to overcharge you first off because you don't know, right? So you want to have at least some basic knowledge of stuff, right? And that's true theologically. Most people make theological decisions without any real foundation in theology itself. Do I like this or that? Do I like incense or I don't? Do I like uh, communion every week or I don't? Do I think uh, homosexuals should be able to marry or I don't? Do I th Most of it is based on just what they feel or how they were raised or what the particular church that they're going to believes and... And that's the, or politically where they stand or something like that. Um, really, what we need to raise up is subsequent generations that are theologically literate. So uh, at the risk of, the, of our bishop uh, hearing this and, uh, and beating me over the head with his crozier, he will sometimes, just to get me going, but I'll be giving some lecture on why the filioque is blasphemy. And he'll say, you know, to quote Archdeacon so-and-so, who gives a, a blankety-blank, you know? And uh, at the risk of him beating me over the head with his crozier, we should all be able to articulate, especially anything that's in the creed, and why it's there or why it's not there, you know? Um, we should be able to articulate, I think, of questions um, like, uh, well, it's easy if someone says, do you believe in the real presence of Jesus in the Eucharist? Well, yes, that's easy. But when someone says, well, do you literally believe it's the body and blood of Jesus? We should be able to answer that. I mean, that's one of the core doctrines of our faith. Now, I'm not saying it's easy to answer. Um, what's more difficult is sometimes people confuse 
The answer, if you say yes, they think you mean transubstantiation. If you say no, then they think you mean symbolically. So I'm not saying it's easy to answer, but we should begin to grapple with these things. Okay? Um, And when someone says, even about homosexuality, if someone says, well, you picked that out of the Old Testament in the Bible, but how come it it says here that if you go uh, onto your neighbor's yard and fill your jar with grapes and leave, you should have your hands cut off. Are you going to start cutting off people's hands too? Well, the answer, of course, is no. But why? Why should that be no? And then the verse here about that God doesn't want us to act out homosexual acts, we hold on to that, but not the grapes one. Why? Because everyone likes grapes. No, that's not why. (laughs) One is the moral law of God, of which we are are still bound as Christians uh, by being bound to Christ. And the other is the particular law of the Jews to distinguish them from the Gentiles, which we have been freed from by the blood, the reconciling blood of Jesus. Those are two different distinct things. The 39 articles make it clear all Christians are bound to the moral law of God. Not because we are bound to the law, but because we are bound to Christ, who is the fulfillment of the law and who is the word of God. But we are not bound to the particular law of the Jews that distinguishes them from the Gentiles. Now, that was a whole nother class. I was hoping someone could actually answer that because I think we've already covered that in this course. But, um, but anyway, um, we should be able to answer. So we need to become more theologically literate, which is my point. So what are the formularies? We're taking, I'm going to get a sip of water. We're taking a stand on the Anglican formularies. Can anyone uh, who uh, is not a postulant uh, uh, Bob Cummins, can anyone, uh, um, or maybe I should see if he actually knows, can anyone name one of the formularies? Bob. Morning prayer? No. No, but that, I, it's a good guess. Emily? I'm just guessing there's 39 articles. Mm-hmm. Bingo. Oh, this water's so good. Um. Yep, the 39 articles are one of the Anglican formularies. Now, because they are particular to Anglicanism and do not belong to the Church Catholic, um, their authority is, is really third place. I mean, um, uh, in that, you know, we hold to the primacy of Scripture, and then the formularies came out of an attempt to be faithful to the Scriptures in the patristic faith underneath the authority and primacy of Scripture. And Anglicanism believes that the 39 Articles, one of the formularies, rightly articulates a biblical Catholicism. So it it tries to establish the via media, which I, as I've argued in the past, uh, this is an important bullet point, uh, it means middle way. A lot of people think that means that, you know, Anglicans always kind of look for the compromise and to be in the middle of things. And, and that's not what the Via Media originally meant. What it meant was is to uh, steer a course back to the, uh, the uh, 
biblical faith in Catholic order of the early church. And when one did so, it, it found that the boat would be steered uh, down a middle path between the extremes of, of Roman medieval Roman Catholicism and the extremes of the more radical Reformation. And so it became, so the via media is not meant to be a compromise, but actually is a principle. A principle of returning the Catholic Church in the realm of England and those subsequently in communion with her to the faith and order of the undivided church under the authority and primacy of Scripture. Now that's in your notes elsewhere, so if you don't get all that, you can, you can look that up. But that's the principle that results in the via media. Unfortunately, a lot of people think that Anglicanism is just simply a compromise because of the via media. And I don't want to belong to a compromise. I want to belong to something that's principled. Okay? And so um, uh, it's principled. Um, now, do I think the 39 articles are perfect? I don't. Um, do I acquiesce to, do I fully agree with most of it? Yes, I do. I fully agree. I break the 39 articles down into three areas. Parts that I can accept with all my heart because it's clearly biblical and patristic. Parts that I think were believed to have been biblical and patristic, but may have been uh, uh, going a little too far or would have to be interpreted uh, in a certain way for me to be comfortable with it. And then there is the third section, the parts I just don't understand. <laughs> I, mean, I, go, I don't know what they mean. Like the, the thing on free will is the most complex article in there. Um, um, in the end, I exercised my free will just not to read it ever again. So, uh, um, but I mean, they are part of our, our movement. But 99, 8, 7% of the 39 articles of religion either fall into one or two. I mean, really, that I can either uh, accept readily or I can accept within a, um, a more patristic understanding. Okay? Um, but the 39 articles, so that's important. Um, if you look up the 39 articles of religion uh, on the computer, you'll see them all there. The first one is on the Holy Trinity. There's nothing wrong with that one. You've got to be careful when you do that, though, because some of them come up with these commentaries that you, you kind of wonder if Marvel Comics wrote them. <laughs> yeah, I know. Yeah, you do. Uh, uh, you know, one place, you just got to look up, and I think it's the 1563 version that you want to pull up, uh, of the 39 Articles of Religion. The first one's on the Trinity, the second one's on the Incarnation, you know, I mean, you know, so it's all, it's all very good. Okay. Um, what's another formulary? 1662 Book of Prayer. Right, the Book of Common Prayer, 1662. The very first Book of Common Prayer was 1549. It's my favorite. It's the highest church in the... Uh, uh, most Catholic, in my opinion. Then the next book of common prayer was the 1552. 
And that was definitely a much lower church and more influenced by the Protestants. Those who wanted to have the English Reformation be more extreme and more like the um, uh, Continental Reformation, more like the Presbyterian Church. Um, and then that was replaced by one soon thereafter that eventually was just a rough draft of the 1662 that would emerge. That really became the standard for Anglicanism, the 1662 Book of Common Prayer. It is still the official Book of Common Prayer in the Mother Church, the Church of England. And it is the Book of Common Prayer in much of the world because as the English missionaries went out throughout the world, that's the Book of Common Prayer they took to Africa, to Asia, to South America. Okay, And so it really is the, the standard. Like any liturgical text, it's not biblical, uh, you know, directly biblical anyway. Um, any, like anything outside the Bible, the, the Book of Common Prayer 1662 has its strengths and its weaknesses. But for the most part, it, it's, uh, I mean, the biggest weakness is that there's no epiclesis. Um, there's implications that the Spirit's on the entire liturgy, but there's no clear epiclesis. Um, uh, but it has its weaknesses, but uh, it is overall a very good biblical-based, um, patristic-based uh, book. Um, and then, can anyone name the third? Is it the Vincentian Canon? No, no. It the ordination rites of 1662, which are very good in my opinion. I like them a lot, including the preface, which we'll go over later in this course, the preface to the ordinal. So it's called the ordinal. Ordinal. Um, so the formularies are the 39 Articles of Religion, the 1662 Book of Common Prayer, and the 1662 Ordinal, including the preface to the Ordinal. So if I'm going to make an argument uh, in this class that's truly Anglican, as I used to tell uh, former classes in Anglican Studies programs when we did papers, I'd say, you can come to any conclusion you want, but you need to argue from, firstly, Scripture, secondly, tradition, thirdly, the Anglican formularies, fourthly, taking into account the particular author of the text that we were reading that, that time, and, you know, and then go from there. Um, and what was I trying to teach them? How Anglicans should do theology. Ultimately, the problem in the church is that people think that their personal, their individual opinions matter. You know, we're really, if we as church did things, uh, our debates were based on bring up any topic. Just someone name a topic that the church has grappled with. Immaculate Conception. Okay, the Immaculate Conception of Mary in the womb of Anne. Right. The argument shouldn't be based on um, well, I like Mary, so I'm for it. <laughs> uh, or, well, that's what Rome believes. Or, no, I reject it because the Eastern Orthodox Church doesn't believe that. Um, or, you know, I'm high church, so I believe it. it should, none of that. Or my personal opinion is it should be looked at from, firstly, Scripture. 
is the dogma of the Immaculate Conception scriptural? Secondly, is it patristic? Right? Is it patristic as grounded in scripture? Then thirdly, we would then uh, um, visit the uh, Anglican formularies, which one of the 39 articles says, Christ alone without sin. By the way, when it comes to it being a dogma that Mary was conceived in the womb of Anne with being kept free, not set free, big difference by the way, being kept free from original sin, is that uh, biblical? Yeah. No. Is it patristic? No. Wasn't even known. And does it work with the 39 articles? No. But you see, my, my point is, is it wouldn't be my opinion or their opinion or your opinion or what Rome believes or what Rome doesn't believe or what orthodoxy teaches or what they don't teach. It should be we, we debate it not by, well, my, my, you know, my nephew is, says he's homosexual, so I'm going to base it on that. Or I like, uh, you know, uh, whatever, on um, gluttony. I think it's a good idea. Um, um, by the way, God did revoke that one. He said it's okay. Yeah, yeah. Uh, um, what it has to be is what does the scripture say? What is the patristic mind regarding this? You know, what, what about the Anglican formulary? So something like that Christ is truly present in the sacrament of his body and blood and feeds us with the very gift of, of himself, his person and his life, and that we receive the benefits of his sacrificial death and resurrection in the sacrament. Is that biblical? Yeah. Is that patristic? Yes. Is that uh, square with the Anglican formularies? Yes. Um, but actually transubstantiation, which is an attempt to explain in philosophical terms um, the mystery of how Christ is present, where the bread and wine uh, goes to naught, it, it is overthrown uh, and replaced by the substance of Christ's body and blood, is that clearly biblical? No, because actually Paul, after saying the bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ, goes on to refer to it still as bread and the cup as wine. Okay. Is it clearly patristic? No, the word transubstantiation wasn't known for centuries and was never received by the Eastern Church. Is it, does it square with the articles? No. But a clear belief that Christ Jesus is present in the sacrament, and that that is Jesus, that is biblical. That is patristic. And that does square with the formularies. Who had their hand up? Oh, Emily and then Karen. Yeah. Well, yeah, and, and the reason was historical. Um, it, it basically, you have to remember that the printing press is just coming out. So most people don't have a copy of the scriptures, nor can they read them anyway, uh, because many were illiterate, um, and, uh, and not everyone had a copy. I mean, that was just starting to, to happen. Um, for the average Joe and Jane sitting in the pew, 
they wouldn't have any um, ability to download the fathers of the church. Uh, and so the 39 articles were put out to say, look, we, we are a reformed Catholicism. We are a biblical Catholicism. And so these are the things we want to avoid. Uh, and, so, and it was also to steer away from some of the things that were being abused uh, back then. Karen. So did you say one was a um, final edict? The final version is in 1563, I believe. Yeah, the 39 articles. It was, was that. And then 1662 prayer book uh, became the norm. And then the ordinal with the preface. Um, the writings of the fathers, the creeds, the councils, the liturgies, particularly in the first five centuries. The formularies. Yeah. You know, that's interesting. That um, I can't answer. Um, what we'd have to do is kind of read the post-English Reformation writers and see who starts kind of talking about them in that way. Um, certainly, in a sense... Whatever was the Book of Common Prayer, even before the 1662, was considered to really form us as, as people, you know. Um, but yet someone as late as Lancelot Andrews says that the boundaries of our, of our faith are grounded in, you know, 54321, the writings of the fathers in the first five centuries, the first four councils, the three creeds, the two testaments and the one canon of scripture, and as I like to joke, a partridge in a pear tree. Um, and, you know, doesn't say, oh yeah, and the Anglican formularies, you know, which is interesting. And, you know, um, so I would probably say that by, here, and this is just an educated guess, I would say that by the end of the 17th century, um, at the end of the 1600s, as we're beginning to move into the 1800s and the, the Wesleys and so forth, that you will start seeing um, them specified as the Anglican formularies. But that's just a hypothesis. Um, growing up uh, as, an, as an Episcopalian, I was taught that the hymnal also was part of, of being an Episcopalian, mm -hmm. being an Anglican. That, yeah. that the the modern trend of using contemporary music was totally unheard of. The music came from the hymnal growing up. Well, and that that's part of the problem with contemporary music. You know, people are like, you know, oh, you know, it's really cool. Let's do it. The problem is that most of the hymns that we sing are time tested, and that they've been received by a, the larger body of, of of the church as not only being edifying but theologically correct. Um, um, and so, you know, while no one I have ever heard has listed the hymnal 
as part of the formularies, I have heard uh, throughout seminary that, that same argument that really the hymnal is part of our liturgical expression, so it articulates our faith. Um, and so in that sense, is definitely formative. Um, and I think it's an excellent point, Bob, um, and why we should take a hymnal very seriously and maybe see songs that we experiment with uh, like, Lord, I lift your name on high, or, or um, shine, Jesus, shine, or whatever, um, really as supplemental to see how they endure the test of time within the body of Christ um, and not see them as official hymnal or, or whatever. Um, I wonder if anyone's really thought about that distinction. I mean, maybe, but you know, I think that's a good way of approaching it. Um, because I think it does. Now, there are some things in the, in the hymnal, there's a couple of things which you would need to have a certain spin on for me to um, accept, uh, like um, uh, the Christmas carol, Robed in flesh the Godhead see, Hail the incarnate deity. Well, if you take that last part, Hark the Herald Angels Sing, I think it is, if you take that last part, Hail the Incarnate Deity, okay, that puts an Orthodox spin on it. But robed in flesh is a Gnostic line that, that, that Jesus was not fully man, that he was not uh, God in the flesh, that he only appeared to be in the flesh and basically put on humanity like one would put on a suit. Um, and so robed in flesh was very Gnostic. It's also in the song, Alleluia, Sing to Jesus. Uh, there's a verse in there that says robed in flesh. Now, I think if you look at the context of the whole hymn, though, it's orthodox. But there's a few few lines every once in a while that I see that I go, huh, huh, huh. But for the most part, there's a few that imply the filioque, too. Um, uh, there was one you sang at Easter. I, I, actually, I meant to email you about this, that... Um, not on Easter Day, but it was one of the Sundays after, that essentially said that human sin could, I forget the, the verb, but sully the cross of Christ. Mm. Um, and I, I, I just really jumped at that. Uh, I, I pointed it out to Father Bruce. I meant to uh, email you about it because I just thought it was terrible theology. Yeah, I wonder... It's, it's one of the more popular... Yeah, I wonder if it means that we nail our sins to the cross, but no? Mm -hmm. no. Yeah, see if you can find it. It'd be interesting. But I've used that argument with some of my really low church friends, is that I essentially can sing the whole hymnal. Where if, you know, if they are secretly Presbyterians or Southern Baptists in Anglican clothing, a lot of the songs that we sing about the sacrament, they would never be able to sing. In, you know, uh, um, like uh, Humbly I Adore Thee and, you know, all those wonder, some of my favorite. So I've used that argument before that, you know, I can sing the whole hymnal, you know. And uh, so, yeah, as, as basically stating my position is more Anglican than yours. You know, I never thought about it that by that way, but that's what I was doing, was using the hymnal to defend the legitimacy of my argument over theirs. Which, of course, is a no-brainer. Um, 
and then also sometimes unofficially accepted into the um, formulary, sometimes included, though not officially, uh, is something called the Lambeth quadrilateral. I thought I fixed it, but I saw it fall right back, you see? Um, uh, the leaning tower of the Pisa. Um, The Lambeth. Well, we're going to get into each of those. So we're going to look at each of the formularies, including, including um, the Lambeth quadrilateral, and state what they are and what they say about Holy Scripture. That's what today's class is. Because we're taking our stand on the primacy of Scripture and, of course, the tradition of the Church and the formularies. So what do the formularies say about Scripture? Um... So, um, in the 39 Articles, Article 6 is, is called, Of the Sufficiency of the Holy Scriptures for Salvation. Of the Sufficiency of the Holy Scriptures for Salvation. Now, don't write all this down because you'll be writing this forever, okay? You can look up the 39 Articles, okay? So, I'm going to read it to you. This next line is like one of the main lines of, holy, of uh, Anglicanism as far as identifying us as Bible Catholics. Holy Scripture containeth all things necessary to salvation. Okay. So what we're saying is, yes, we hold the Catholic faith. We have no faith of our own. We hold the faith of the early Catholic Church. We have no sacraments of our own. We hold the sacraments of the early church. We have no creeds and councils of our own. We hold those of the early Catholic Church. Um, we have no ministry of our own. There's really, although uh, sometimes to simplify, I'll say I'm an Anglican priest, there's really no such animal. There's only the Catholic priesthood. And you're either serving in the Orthodox communion, the Roman communion, or the Anglican communion. But there's only one priesthood. But what we're saying is, although we hold to the Catholic faith and order of the early church, um, the essentials of our faith, the must-believes, must be biblical. It can't be what General Convention says, what Father Michael says, what the Pope says, what this bishop says or that bishop says. It must be grounded in the Bible, the Holy Scriptures, as God's Word. So yes, we hold to the Catholic faith and order of the undivided church as it's grounded in the Bible as the Word of God. Is, is everyone with me? Okay. So Holy Scripture containeth all things necessary to salvation. So for example, in Roman Catholicism, they teach that tradition, the teaching magisterium of the church, is of equal authority to the Holy Scripture. So something can come out of tradition or the teaching magisterium of the church and be required of the faithful as a must-believe, even if it's not clearly biblical. Okay, We'd say, no, 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 no. Yes, we hold to the Catholic faith, but we hold to the biblical Catholic faith. We hold to the faith that is grounded in the Holy Scriptures as God's Word. And tradition is subject to Scripture. 
the primacy of Scripture. Is everyone with me? That's an important difference. And it's really, and I don't mean this in a sinful way, but it's really kind of where my pride in being an Anglican comes in. You know, because there's a lot for us not to be all that proud of. You know, but, you know, when people say, oh, you know, I'm Orthodox. I say, oh, gee, I love your church. They say, oh, yes. But a lot of what they're basing it on is, you know, that their nationality, that they're Greek or they're Ukrainian or they're Russian or they're Serbian or or their baklava is better than their baklava recipe, or, you know, and there's a lot of tradition with a small t and superstition and canons that go along with it that are not clearly uh, biblical. Um, but when I say, you know, or someone who's Roman Catholic, well, you know, we're different because of this, that, or that. The one thing where I take a little pride is that, you know what, we're the Bible Catholics. In fact, I wish in some ways that the Orthodox, small o, Anglicans would get rid of the word Anglican, which really, and we can say that our heritage is Anglican, but it, you know, for one, it implies white Anglo-Saxonism, which, you know, most of the Anglican world is not. And, and, and secondly, um, secondly, no one knows what it is. You know, I mean, when I hand out cards, people know whether they like them or not. They know what the Roman Catholic Church is. They even know that strange Orthodox, those Greeks, because, you know, they went to their, their Lamb's Supper or something, right? You know, and they, they know who Pentecostals are, but they don't know who angel cans are, which is what most people say to me. Angels cans? I say, well, angels can do a lot of things, but that's not us. Um, yeah, we try. Um, and so, you know, I really wish we would just come out and call our church what it is. Um, Holy Trinity Bible Catholic Church. That's what I wish it was. If you said that, I think every little Bible church you see on the road can't use that term. <laughs> really? well, well, but Bible Catholic, though, that would... The other suggestion is, is, which has been made actually, is that it be Evangelical Catholic Church, which states that it's clearly biblical and clearly Catholic, which is what the word Episcopal was meant to be, by the way, that it was Protestant, that, in, that is, that it was pro-Testament, it was grounded in the scriptures, but Episcopal meaning grounded on the authority of bishops and therefore Catholic so that was the original intent of calling it the Protestant Episcopal Church. And then the word Protestant kind of came to mean not Catholic, so they dropped that. And then they decided to give up Christianity altogether. So, you know, so that, that was easy. Um, yes? The Anglican formularies, 39 articles of religion, 1662 Book of Prayer, and 1662 Ordination Rite. Yeah, the ordinal including the preface. Why did they not include that's part of tradition, not the Anglican formularies. Oh, okay, so yeah. they don't include scripture or tradition. No, no, no. This is scripture, tradition, and then, and then what's particular to us is the Anglican formularies. Okay. Yep. Okay. Um, so Holy Scripture containeth all things necessary to salvation. That is, if something is necessary for you to believe, it will be biblical, Right? So, for example, and I've used this example many times, you're probably bored of it, but if, God forbid, um, Bob is hit by a bus 
And I uh, go, I'm right there. I come running out and I say, Bob, I've been stalking you. Um, that's the bad news. The good news is I'm here moments before you die. <laughs> okay? And, um, and, uh, and Bob says to me, Archdeacon, I'm stalking Yeah, go away. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's it. Right directly there. And he and he says to me, Archdeacon, I'm not a hundred percent sure that Mary's body, three days after she died, was um taken by Jesus into heaven and reunited with her soul and glorified. Um I'm not sure about that. Is his soul in danger? Someone give her directions to St. Matthias. Um, no, his soul's not in danger. I would, now, I happen to believe, because the, and without getting off on this topic, the whole patristic church did, that, that um, Mary was taken body and soul into heaven. It's implied in the uh, collect used for that feast, but that's not a matter of salvation. If, if he says to me, um, Father Michael, I think James was the biological child of Mary. <laughs> Is his salvation in danger? No. He's wrong. And that's a whole other uh, uh, class, which I actually love to give because people think it's so clear in the Scripture the other way when actually it's clear in Scripture that... Um, James was not uh, her biological son. But anyway, uh, the early church believed that these other children were children of Joseph, who was a widower. But anyway. Yeah? Yeah. Yeah. We can get into that. I've done a lot of reading on this. For one, when Jesus from the cross gives Mary to John, where's James live? Jerusalem. Where's Jesus being crucified? Why is he giving Mary to, to John? When according to the law, who's to raise, who's to take care of her? James. James, who's right there in Jerusalem. However, if James was her stepson, the son, biological child of her deceased spouse, it would have been normal for Jesus to, to give her to whom he wanted. But if he was related to the others, that would. But that's a whole. That's a whole another thing. And in the English, it also says that, she, um, and she did not uh, bring forth another child until she had brought forth. She did not know him until she brought forth her firstborn child. In the English, that seems to imply that after she brought forth her firstborn child, that she and Joseph, you know, it's hard to even think about. But you, you know. The Blessed Mother, but uh, right, uh, right, um, and and yet that word until I can use it in English in a way that um, to show how that how it's used there in the Greek. Um, sadly, the cancer worsened, and she didn't eat anything until the day she died. Does that mean that on the day she died, she had a big meal? No, it means she never had anything to eat. Okay. So uh, that's just an example. But we're getting off the track because he went, uh, and I heard him. So, um, 
So if he says to me, you know, I'm not sure Mary was taken into heaven, or I'm not sure that she was the, a perpetual virgin or whatever, uh, I'm going to be like, take it up with, with Mary when you get, you know, when you get there, uh, uh, Bob, which will be in a few seconds. Um, and, um, but if he says to me, Father Mike, I'm not sure I believe in the Trinity, I'm not sure that Jesus is the Son of God or God incarnate. I'm not sure that he died on my sin, for my sins. I'm not sure he rose from the dead. Houston, we have a problem, okay? And it's one that has to get resolved really quickly, okay? Um, and um, so that's more of a concern, much more, for his salvation than the others. Why? Because one is biblical and the others um, aren't. One is necessary for salvation, and the other is doctrine, but not dogma. It's theological, but it's not dogma of the church. Okay. Brother Michael, the, the, the word necessary, I, I have a hard time with it, because to me necessary implies that it is needed, but there could be more that you need. Why don't we use the word sufficient? I've always read it that way, that that's what, they, that's what they mean, is that if it's necessary for you to believe as a Christian, it's going to be biblical. Nothing else can be required. In other words, the, scripture, the scriptural faith is sufficient. Um, nothing can be added to it, and it goes on to say this, where it's required of the faithful to believe. It's not that it can't be believed. It's not that it can't be taught but it cannot be taught as necessary for them to believe for their salvation unless it's biblical. No, what I'm trying to get at is, let's take, for example, the death and resurrection of Christ. Mm. It's necessary, you could say it's necessary for your salvation. Right. But it's not just necessary, it's sufficient. You don't need anything else other than his death and resurrection for your salvation. You don't need the Pope to come and say, Father Michael, you know, okay, thank you for believing in Christ, but... Well, it does say required, so I, I, I think that's implied in here. Um, I'll read the whole thing, and the rest of you can kind of help judge that, but I, I think that's implied in there. Um, unfortunately, though, this isn't what you were saying, but a lot of evangelicals will say, you know, all, all you need to be saved is to believe that Jesus Christ is Lord and that he died and he rose, and... And I'll say, that's it, that's right. We don't add anything to that. Nothing? No, nope, nothing. That's all. But, you know, we've got to believe in your heart, profess with your lips, that Jesus Christ is the Lord, and he died, and he rose from your sins, and you are saved. That's it. Anything beyond that works. And I said, oh. So all the Mormons are saved and are Christians, right? Because they believe that he is Lord, and he died on the cross, and he rose from the dead. They happen to believe that he is one God among millions, but, you know... So that just as a, a, what they call apologetics, the next time someone says, you know, that that's all that's necessary, say, you know what, that sounds nice, but in, in practice, you know, that Jesus is Lord and that he died and rose, they, not only can the Mormons say that, but the Jehovah's Witnesses can say that. What they mean by Lord is very different than what we mean by Lord. They don't believe he's God. But you're, you're talking in two different senses here. You're talking about... Mm -hmm. Space, and you're talking about uh, you're talking epistemology, you're talking ontology, you're talking. No, I went to a whole. I told him we're leaving what he was talking about, going to something that just his 
no, no, thing no. inspired me to think about. What I, there's a way in which mm-hmm. I think what he says is right. Okay. That it, in, a, in a very real sense, all that's necessary for salvation is that Jesus Christ died on the cross for the world's sins. Mm-hmm. That's all that's necessary for salvation. But that's not all that's necessary to believe in order to, as it were, appropriate. Do I have you right? Yes. Appropriate uh, the the act of Jesus on the cross. But if you were going to say that, you would have to say that's all that is necessary. I disagree with your viewpoint. Yeah, I, I would say you have to believe in the Trinity to be saved. I, I would say that anything that's in the creed, you have to believe to be saved. Well, let's read the whole thing, and then we'll go from... No, it's just that it, it sounds nice, but you really do need the lens of tradition to interpret what that means. Because just based on those words, you can have anything from Jesus is a God to Jesus is, is God incarnate to Jesus is an agent of God. And still, per, and both the Mormons and us and the Jehovah's Witnesses will all say that Jesus Christ is Lord, that he died on the cross, and that he rose from the dead. And yet one believes that he's a God. The, one believes, that would be us, he is God. And one believes he's an agent of God. But every one of them can say Jesus is Lord and he died on the cross and rose for, for our sins and rose from the dead. You know, and that we're justified in him. You know, so you can even add that and that, you know, there's no other way to salvation. They all agree with that too. But those are three different religions right there. But all he is saying is, and all I'm saying with him is, had that not there would be no salvation. That's... Yeah. And right, and you must believe that. That's required. I I think what they're saying here is that if it's necessary for you to believe as a Christian, it has to be biblical. That's all I think they're saying. It can't be from Father Michael or the Pope or... I don't see what they're saying is different. It's necessary. You don't rule out that it's sufficient. That's what I mean, that would be the context I read it in. But like I said, let me read the whole thing and, and you know we can see. Holy Scripture containeth all things necessary to salvation, so that whatsoever is not read therein, nor may be proved thereby, is not to be required of any man that it should be believed as an article of the faith or be thought requisite or necessary to salvation. So I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm with him, if I'm understanding you correctly, that to me, it, that's assumed in that. Well, see, the thing that I'm trying to get at is, mm-hmm. you know, let's go back to your example of Bob having three seconds to live, right? Yeah. Uh, let's also assume that Bob is not a Christian at all at that point. Mm-hmm. 
Bob. Now, the Michael trots up to him and Bob says, I accept that Christ died on the cross for me. Is that sufficient? Or are you going to have to say to him, well, that's nice, Bob, but do you believe that the Trinity is three people in one? Three, three, you know. I only have three seconds. See, that's what I'm trying to get at, which is if you say that it is more than the Christ dying for you on the cross, if that's not sufficient, if there's more that you need, then then you should say that. Well, I, I do think that this is, just like when we say that baptism is necessary for salvation, I, I mean, we can always bring up, well, what about the person who's on the island or the person who, you know, uh, you know, believes in Jesus and believes in the Trinity and he's on his way to get baptized and he's run over by a bus. And I, I mean, I do think that what, when the church writes these things, it's for the norm, like those who are living within the Christian life. And so they're saying that it's not for the person that in the most extreme circumstances, I think what they're saying here is if you're a Christian, no one can require you to believe anything as, as, as necessary for salvation unless it's, it's biblical. It's saying more than that. It's saying if you're an Anglican Christian, if you're, if you're experiencing your Christian walk within the Anglican uh, hmm. Understanding of that, yeah. then, then point number six holds true in the, the thirty-nine articles. That the Bible is is sufficient, is sufficient. Um, you said what word word were you using? Sufficient. I'd actually use okay. Both. Well, it, it does use that word in the title. You I'd, know. I'd actually use both necessary and sufficient. Well, it does use it in the title. The title is of the sufficiency of Holy Scripture for salvation. I mean, I, I'm not sure that, I, and I may be misunderstanding, but I'm not sure that you're on the same wavelength as they are. No, we're talking about, we're talking about it in a different sense. Yeah. What, what the article is talking about uh, has to do with the formation of one of belief. Right. What I thought he was talking about, certainly what I was talking about, was what has to have happened in the world independently of what anybody might believe about it. Independently of what anybody might believe about it, it has to have been the case in the world that Jesus Christ died on the cross for the sins of the world. Yeah, well, yeah. I I would say theologically even more than that. The incarnation, it has to be God himself in the flesh that died, not an agent. So it's not just a... So I would say the incarnation uh, and death... The incarnation meaning the whole thing. However you you compose that. Yeah, I agree. The way you said it is very good in the sense that this, this is for the formation. That if, as how do you know what to believe as a Catholic Christian uh, in the realm of England? Um, well, if it's necessary versus you know things like purgatory, transubstantiation, papal claims, and all all of this as being necessary. No, it has to be biblical for someone to claim that it's that it's essential for the Christian to believe. Um, I mean, certainly for not those who have who have you know, been hit by a bus and are coming to Jesus within three seconds. But certainly um, for those who are coming into the church, before they can be baptized and saved, it's necessary for them to believe in the Trinity, for example. 
and you know, in the forgiveness of sins and baptism and 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 so forth. So I do think that this is, um, uh, you know, for the f- formation uh, of that. So Holy Scripture containeth all things necessary to salvation, so that whatsoever is not read therein, nor may be proved thereby, is not to be required of any man, that it should be believed as an article of the faith, or be thought requisite or necessary to salvation. Um, so what they're saying is, our faith has to be grounded in the Bible. Okay, I can't come out and say, um, you know, for you to be saved, you must pray so many rosaries, right? At least ten a day for thirty years to be saved, because that's not biblical. So, as a priest, I cannot require you to do that to be saved, okay? Because it's not biblical. But I can say to you. I require of you to be saved, to repent and to believe in Jesus Christ and to be cleansed in his blood because that's biblical. All right? I can say that you must believe in God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Okay? Um, in the name of the Holy Scripture, we do understand those canonical books of the Old and New Testament of whose authority was never any doubt in the church. Now, here's one, uh, here's where the issue comes in. They're assuming that, the, that both the Old and New Testament, that there was never any doubt of, of, let's say, just the 27 books of the New Testament. Well, that's not true. <laughs> there was some doubt on some of the books by parts of the church. Okay. Um, not too much. I mean, it was pretty clear, you know, and it had to be clarified at some point. But that's a bit of an, a simplification and overstatement to say we accept definitely as canonical those things in the Old and New Testament that have never been in doubt. Uh, if they had said, had, you know, or reasonably without doubt or something like that, I think that would have been a little bit truer to, to uh, history. But anyway, then they go on to say Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, etc., 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 etc. Okay. Then they say, And the other books, as Jerome saith, the church doth read, for example, of life and instruction of manners, but yet doth it not apply them to establish any doctrine, such are the following. The third book of Ezra's, the rest of the book of Esther, the fourth book of Ezra's, the book of wisdom, the book of Tobias, the son of Sirach, the book of Judith, you know, the story of Susanna, uh, the second book of Maccabees, etc. Now, this is where some breath is given in Anglicanism. A low, 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 low churchman. How low can you go? A low, 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 low churchman. Okay. Um... Uh, is is does not usually tend to say that the apocrypha those other books that I mentioned are canon. Okay, what they'll say is they are read in the church because they are certainly holy books, but they're not at the same level of inspiration as the canon in that we don't establish any doctrine from them. 
They were never, there's not clear, perfectly clear as there are with the 27 books of the New Testament and the other books of the Old Testament, a reception by the whole church, East and West, that's identical. And so we don't accept them as scripture or as canonical, though they are certainly holy and inspired at some level. Um, So they're not the word of the Lord, they're not scripture, they're not part of the canon, but they are important and we read them within the church. But we don't establish any doctrine based just on, on those. So that's what a low churchman would say. A low churchman would say the Apocrypha is not canon. Important, holy, but not canon. I'll give you an example. Bruce, Father Bruce, went to a very low church evangelical seminary. He was taught that when you do a reading in the Mass um, from one of the apocryphal books, that at the end, you don't say the word of the Lord. You say, here ends the lesson. Okay? Because you don't want to equate it with the rest. Here's what a high churchman like myself would say. When I, so, and I've had low churchmen come and say, Well, oh, Michael, I know you, your high church. You believe the Apocrypha is, is canon like the rest of it, don't you? Uh-huh because that's what the early church fathers believed, and and there's a reason why the one, Jerome, didn't, and I can get into all of that if you want. Um, But they say, ah, but, just like I used the hymnal against the other guy, aha. But this says, in the name of the Holy Scripture, we do understand those canonical books of the Old and New Testament of whose authority was never any doubt in the church. Genesis, Exodus, da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da. And the other books, as Jerome says, the church doth read in the example of life. So it's very clear in Article 6, Michael, that they are not canonical. That's their reading of it, okay? which is accepted in many parts of Anglicanism. Here's my reading of it, according to the grammar. In the name of the Holy Scripture... We do understand those canonical books of the Old and New Testament of whose authority was never any doubt in the church to be canonical. Genesis, And, it says, the other books. So the fact that it, there's an and there, I would argue, can be to imply that they are also canonical, though the lowest on the totem pole, because... Um, Uh, there's a context for their being canonical, which is that they're read, for example, of life and instruction of manners, but we don't establish any doctrine based on them alone. That, by the way, my position is more similar to the Eastern Orthodox position, which does accept them as canonical, but lowest on the totem pole. Rome just accepts them and doesn't make any, any differentiation. I tend to not call them apocryphal, but use in the English what the Eastern Orthodox Church is, which is deuterocanonical, meaning extra canon, in addition to the clear canon. Ultimately, the difference between... I wish I had a board here to draw on, because it would help. Ultimately... In, in my belief, you have the Old and New Testament that's clearly canonical, and then down here, 
the lowest on the totem pole, you have the deuterocanonical texts, what people call the Apocrypha, right? And they're lowest on the totem pole. But they're part of the canon, but they're lowest, okay? Um, just as the Old Testament has to be understood in light of the New Testament. So in a sense, the New Testament would be there, and then the Old Testament, and then the Apocrypha. The only real difference between me and my low-church Anglican buddy is that for him, this is canon, and it ends there, and this is right up next to it, but is on the other side. Well, guess what? In the diagram, the pictures basically look what? The same, right? And so in the low church, that ends the canon, and this is as close as it gets to the canon. We, yes, we read them in public liturgy. Yes, we teach from them. Yes, they're important historically. Yes, we just don't establish doctrine from them. Where I say they're lowest on the totem pole, which means we don't establish doctrine from them. So ultimately, it, it, it you know, is at some level, a matter of um, semantics. Um, um, however, making the argument for them or against them being canonical, it seems the early church fathers, the earliest church fathers, quoted from, all right, here's an argument on this side that they're canonical, here's an argument on this side that they're not. First of all, the New Testament writers are writing in Greek and when they quote the Old Testament, they quote from the Septuagint, which is the Greek version, which included the deuterocanonical text, the Apocrypha. An obvious example is Matthew, and a virgin shall conceive. He didn't quote the Hebrew, that a young maiden shall conceive. Okay, so point for it being canonical. Ding! On the other hand, over here, there's no clear-cut direct quote in the New Testament of any of the apocryphal books, where there are quotes, as Isaiah said, da 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 So that gives a little ding over here. Ding! Okay, on the other hand, there are also some non-scriptural things, like the Book of Enoch, that are quoted also in Jude. So that, to me, weakens that argument, but I'm trying to be fair. Okay? Um, over here on this side... Um, the earliest church fathers quoted from the Apocrypha and made no distinction when they're quoting from the Apocrypha and the rest of the Old Testament. So, ding! Okay. Uh, argument over here. Um, even within Catholic Christendom, there's no clear um, reception of the Apocrypha. Rome just accepts them without any differentiation. Orthodoxy accepts them, but they're considered deuterocanonical. Okay, Anglicanism accepts them, but they're either deuterocanonical or just subcanonical. So you don't have a clear Catholic reception of those books. Ding! Okay. Um, uh, also, as far as Jerome, Jerome was educated where? Does anyone know? Milan, I think. No. What? No, Jerome went to and was educated in Bethlehem. And the Hebrew scriptures that he knew were the Hebrew that didn't have the canon of the Septuagint. He was influenced greatly uh, by that and called into question the um, authority of those because he really favored 
and he was the first father to really do this, the Hebrew canon versus the Septuagint canon. And you really have two canons of the Old Testament. You have the Jews in Palestine and the Jews outside of Palestine. Which one are the real Jews? They both are. You know, so it becomes a little difficult. Well, why Jerome, if he's only one father, why should that carry such a big influence? Jerome translates the Hebrew Bible and the New Testament into what? Latin, called the Vulgate. Later on, it will be the Vulgate that is used by whom? No, no, later on by the Reformers, Luther and Calvin and Swingley. They're using the Vulgate, and they're reading Jerome's commentaries on it. In the same time, Rome is using some of the Apocrypha to defend some of their doctrines that are abusive in the church, like purgatory and offering money for the dead and that kind of thing. So you take that and all that and stir it up, and you see a real problem with the Apocrypha among the Reformers on the continent. So Anglicanism kind of took the, the position that, um, that we won't establish doctrine based on them, but they are canonical or they are just subcanonical. Um, the word canon means rule. Right. If um, you can't establish a doctrine with something, Mm-hmm. You can't say, therefore, it's a, step, uh, a rule can rest on it. By definition, it would seem to me you're saying that's not canon. Mm-hmm. Just by, by virtue yeah. of the words. Yeah, I mean, you, you, can make, you can make the argument, but canon also means official list. Like a, a canon at a cathedral could be a curate, but he, uh, so can a, an organist. It could be a canon, a lay canon, because they're on the official list of those who serve on the staff at the, at the cathedral. Um, and uh, many would make the argument that the fact that it's used liturgically and publicly um, and so forth would mean that by its use, it is, it's evidence that it's canonical. So and they, they, would, they would also make the argument that you wouldn't establish doctrine on any one part of the Bible. You, you know, it has to be the scripture as a whole. So they'd, they'd say this doesn't, that's not a huge jab at the Apocrypha. And most of it just comes from a fear of Rome using those alone to say, well, we can pull out this one place where we see the Maccabees offering gold on behalf of the dead who died with idols on them. Therefore, throw your money into the coffers, you know. And so that's what they're really arguing against. Ultimately, you can make the argument, I think, that it is sub-canon but abuts the canon. Or you can say it's the lowest on the total pole in canon. And ultimately, it's used in the church at funerals. At, I mean, many funerals. I've been doing one, sadly, Tuesday uh, for that little girl. But, um, you know, I'm using wisdom. The souls of the righteous are in the hands of God and no torment shall ever touch them. To the eyes of the foolish, that's you and I, it seems that they have died and they're going forth to be their end, but they are at peace. I mean, it's beautiful. Tobias, that we may grow old together, is used at weddings all, all the time. Um, some of the clearest passages about the Son of uh, God and Son of Man are in the Apocrypha. Um, so um, I think ultimately, 
the difference between a high church and low church position would be that the high church person would say clearly it's the word of God. The others would say, you know, it's inspired, it's good, it's helpful, it's holy in some sense, but it's not clearly canonical. But the position really where it is, is the same. Um, so, you know, just wanted to point that out. Uh, just so you know where your priest stands, I believe it's the word of God. And, uh, uh, and, but I believe it holds the lowest place. So ultimately, not that different from someone who has a low church position of it. Interestingly enough, um, uh, in a lot of Reformed seminaries now, they're studying the Apocrypha because they're finding that it really helps to comprehend Jesus and his time and his culture. You can't just jump from Malachi to Mark without understanding the theology and the history, etc., of the Apocrypha. And so that without it, you're really not comprehending the New Testament. So now they're actually teaching it even in Reformed Seminary. So it's, it's making a comeback even among the Protestants. You know, so. But my defense hangs on the word and. <laughs> that it says these books are canonical. <laughs> and that. And that's where I take my st and. I thought that was funny. But anyway. Um, all the books of the New Testament, as they are commonly received, we do receive and account them as canonical. Father Bruce was funny this morning. I don't know if you heard him, Praveen, but he said that uh, actually the other day, he said, um, I mentioned this uh, at our class to the staff, and he said, um, I know the other day, I said, I know. I didn't want to mention anything, but I know. He, we were at the, at the chapel, and he read from, I think it was Tobit, I forget, and at the end he said, here ends the lesson. And he was going to point out, I said, I already know. I already went home, and I marked it down on your file. And, uh, but anyway, uh, um, he says he actually believes that it's canonical. He just couldn't, his seminary trained him so much, he just couldn't get it out of his mouth, he said. Goodness gracious. So anyway. Um, the 39 articles now go on to Article 7, called Of the Old Testament. Of the Old Testament. The Old Testament is not contrary to the New. This is very important in, uh, in our defense against revisionists in that whenever you say something, even if it's not the particular law of the Jews, they'll say, oh yeah, but that's Old Testament, as if that's not canonical. Okay? So the Old Testament is not contrary to the New. For both in the Old and New Testament, Everlasting life is offered to mankind by Christ. Isn't that awesome? I, I mean, that's why I get mad at some churches when they say a reading from the Hebrew Scriptures. To me, the Hebrew Scriptures are the Scriptures of the Jews that are read without the lens of understanding the Trinity in Christ. Right? It's Old Testament or First Testament or something. Right? That means we understand so that when God says, uh, let us make man in our image, we are interpreting that as the Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. In Genesis 3.15, when he says, I shall put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers, he will strike at your heel and you will crush your head. 
you know, we, we understand that, that that's a prophecy of the coming of Jesus being born of Mary, okay? Uh, and the offspring of the serpent is sin and death, and the offspring of Mary is Christ the Lord, life and salvation. So it's a whole different way. And Paul even tells us in the New Testament that they participated in sort of a lesser way, in a mystical way, even in the body and blood of Christ uh, when they were in the desert. The waters in the ro- of the rock of Meribah being a partaking in the blood of Christ. Okay. Um, what's that? Oh, also the, the reference to uh, Melchizedek. Oh, yeah. That one baffles me how a Jew doesn't read that and go, oh, boy. That, that's, that's definitely Jesus. Oh, boy. I, I mean, I don't get that one at, at all. But anyway, um, all right. So the Old Testament is not contrary to the New, for both in the Old and New Testament, everlasting life is offered to mankind by Christ. So it's Christ who saves. I love the image of Christ on the cross, that it's not only for all the rest of time, but when he dies on the cross, salvation is offered to all time, that way and that way. You know, forward and backward in time, from Adam and Eve all, all the way to the second coming of, of Christ. Who is the only mediator between God and man being both God and man? This is what I'm trying to get across to these Jehovah's Witnesses coming to my house. An agent couldn't do it. An angel couldn't have pulled it off, no matter how superior he was to all the other angels. If he's a creature, he would have fallen short. Yeah, Yeah, I'm going to answer your call. Uh, I'm just kidding. I don't even know who it is. No. (laughs) All right. Um. Wherefore, they are not to be heard, which feign that the old fathers did look only for transitory promises. That is, that the Old Testament was only for that time, okay, and that it has no implication. It was only transitory. Although the law given from God by Moses as touching ceremonies and rites do not bind Christian men, nor the civil precepts thereof ought of necessity to be received in any commonwealth, that is the particular law of the Jews that distinguished them from the Gentiles, which, as the New Testament says, is done been done away with now because of the blood of Christ on the cross. Yet notwithstanding, no Christian man whatsoever is freed from the obedience of the commandments which are called moral. Okay, which is again why we don't chop off someone's hand for stealing grapes, but why we do say that uh, sex is within marriage. Okay. And how do they distinguish which fall in the moral category and which fall in the particular? Well, the particular, there's, there's 618 or 681? 618, I think. It's not 681. Okay, well, six, I'm going to go with 18 then. I think <laughs> 600 and something. There's 618 particular laws of the Jews. And that's why on the prayer shawl that the Orthodox men wear, there are 618 or possibly 13 um, uh, fringes uh, on it. So it's clear that, you know, there's a particular law. Then the moral law is, you know, 
thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not steal. Right, you know, and basically summarized in the Ten Commandments, but there are other there are other moral laws, you know, that you know, you shall not lay with, you know, this and that and, you know, animals and stuff like that, which are always good to avoid. Okay. <laughs> yes. It's amazing what they have to tell us not to do. <laughs> you, you, you know, I, I, I mean, it, it's, you know, I, I remember um, being back, like, right, you know, right out of high school and in seminary, so in the uh, um, mid-80s, and saying that, and some people were talking about, you know, the ordination of women. This is actually in the Roman Catholic seminary, okay? And they were talking about that. And I said, well, you know, I think we have to discern as a church and look at, you know, scripture and tradition and blah, 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 blah. And they were just saying, oh, no, if you can have a man, woman doctor and all this other stuff. I said, you got to be careful when you start innovating. I said, you know, the next thing is going to be, you know, homosexual marriage. They thought I was nuts. How could A have anything to do with B? Um, and then, uh, you know, when people say, oh, okay, well, if you know, if you allow homosexual marriage, then the next thing is going to be, you know, um, polygamy and pedophilia. Oh, that's crazy. Well, now there are several countries in the world which it is permissible by law to have relations with kids as young as it might be 11 or 12. Um, and it's becoming more and more acceptable. Um, and what and why? Because the only thing that matters is love. That's right. And so you know. And if you and then of course, uh, while there are biblical grounds for divorce, there's also this idea that well, you know, I just don't love you anymore. Well, I don't love you. Okay. Well, I'll go find someone that I love, and you go find someone, and we'll be married to them until love departs. It's not till love departs. It's until you depart, baby. <laughs> right? Right? And so, you know, it's a domino effect uh, on, on these things. But, you know, I, I, so you'll think I'm crazy, but I don't think that 20 years from now that, I mean, just look. Why was Three's Company so, like, ooh, kind of funny and taboo? Because a guy was living with two women, even though he wasn't sleeping with them, right? Um, and, I mean, look how far we've come. I mean, it used to be that premarital sex was wrong, but, wink, wink, but, you know, definitely adultery was bad. Then it was premarital sex is okay, and adultery is okay if your marriage is not in good shape. Then it was, you know, the idea that, you know, having relations with others from time to time can actually spice up your, your marriage. And so you're doing it for the good of the marriage. I love that one. So you're doing the good of the marriage. Um, and then it was, you know, do you see what I mean? It, 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 the ante keeps getting up. So what, what is wrong? At what point is something wrong? And I, I was watching um, The Big Bang Theory the, the other day. No, it wasn't The Big Bang Theory. Hold on. It was... How I Met Your Mother. Has anyone ever seen it? How I Met Your Mother. Anyway, there's this whole thing where there's this woman hanging around with a gang of friends. Okay? And Ted, who's one of the main characters, is falling for this 
woman who's new who's hanging around with the group of friends and he's fallen in love with her. Um, the problem is is that she's, she's married. And the moral of the story was she had to go, the friendship had to end because he had fallen in love with her and it wasn't right for you know, her to be around him because it's just going to, you know, it could lead to some, you know, lead yourself not to temptation. And I actually thought, you know what, for a show today, that's a pretty high morality. You know, this idea that if I'm in love with someone who's married, I really need to cut off all contact with, with them. I thought that was a pretty high morality. Then later in the show, not that it completely fell apart, but he he gets a phone call and she gets a phone call. He basically tells her, you know, we can't be friends anymore. You know, you drive me crazy. He's lying to her. You know, you're driving me crazy. And so, you know, I don't want to be friends with you anymore. You can't hang out with me anymore. And you need to go. And um, so he, he's trying to do that because he can't be around her. And then she gets a phone call and he gets a phone call, both from a friend explaining, look, he's in love with you. And no, she's in love with you. And by the way, she's getting a divorce. They both hang up the phone and they start kissing. Okay, so even though it's a higher morality than most television shows, there was nothing about. Well, wait a minute. You say you're getting divorced, but it, what are the grounds for the divorce? Uh, is there any chance of you reconciling? Or the fact that until she's divorced, she's married. Uh, I remember talking to a friend of mine who was evangelical and he started dating uh, this woman and he was like, you know, oh, you know, definitely biblical grounds. This guy was unfaithful to her over and over and over again. He won't repent. She's become a Christian. He wants nothing to do with Christ. So, I mean, there's two. There's adultery without repentance plus abandonment of a believer. Plus he's been physically abusive. Okay, so now we're into um, canonical impediments. So... I'm listening to all this going, okay, you know, Tom, you're making a great argument. I mean, bing, check, check, check. Okay, good. And so he's like, so I need advice. Uh, he's like, um, so their divorce won't be th done through, even though they've been separated for a long time, for another three months. Uh, um, can we date? And I said, um, Tom, are you free to marry her? And he said, No. That would be illegal. I said, she's not free to marry. She's not free to date. I said, and here's the, all right, I said, so that's a matter of right or wrong. Once she's divorced, especially because of all those grounds, I said, um, it won't be a matter of right or wrong, but it's a matter of wisdom or not. Uh, I wouldn't date her for like six months. You know, let her heal, let her go through that pain, let her get to know herself apart from that marriage. And uh, anyway, they did wait till the divorce, but I think he picked her up at the courthouse and went out on their first date. And it fell, it did fall apart because she was not, she thought she was ready, but she was, you know, it fell apart. And then he came and, and I very sympathetically told him, I told you so. And uh, so, uh, yeah, he doesn't talk to me anymore. Anyway, uh, no, we're, we're still friends actually, but um, Christmas card friends, but we're still friends. Um, but he's still single. And... Um, so, you know, so my point is that morality has gone less and less and less and less and less and less. Now, let's say you are in the Lord. You are walking according to his word. He is in your heart. You love Jesus. 
you, you, you read his word every day. You say morning and evening prayer. But you sin, and I mean big time. I don't know what it, what it would be, but you made the big time on the sin scale. If it was one of these things, you ding at the top, okay? Um, does that mean that all those things I just said are not true? No. What do you have to do? Repent. This will be part of my sermon probably tomorrow. I say probably because the last two weeks I have brought my sermon outline and then ended up completely giving two different sermons than what was in front of me. So probably. But that a Christian is either walking according to God's word or is in the midst of repentance, having gone against God's word. The one thing a Christian doesn't want to do is to live in the sin and justify themselves. Okay, That's the one thing you don't want to do. All those things can still be true, though, and you can be here, but you'll wander far, and those things will become dimmer and dimmer and dimmer as you get used to the dark. Okay. Um, the, uh, um, the more you walk with God and the more that that's actually going on in your life, mm-hmm. I think the harder it is to sin. Mm-hmm. At least the harder it is to sin knowingly, consciously, thought, thoughtfully. Mm-hmm. Um, because you're living in, you're living in God. Mm-hmm. The, it, the, the point of Jewish culture uh, was that every aspect of life had um, reference to God. There was no part mm-hmm. of life uh, where God and God's word was not involved. So one was walking, as it were, all day long in the law of the Lord. Right. And to that extent, I think that was a very, very good idea mm-hmm. because that kept God in everybody's yeah. consciousness right. 24 hours a day, seven days a right. week. And we in our society, in our right. kind of split up, compartmentalized world, world yeah. have to struggle for, to retain that kind of consciousness, uh, yeah. to be as, as close to God or as married to God as we are to our spouses yeah. and remind yeah. ourselves of that in a right. way. So there, there was something to that idea yeah. uh, that looks, you know, you, you can't have, you know, wool and linen in the same garment. Well, yeah. Well, I mean, I have to say that I, I even respect this particular thing, that when I'm in an airport or a restaurant and I see a Muslim bowing down facing east because it's that time of day, you know, and I think, you know, we're, we're afraid to even say grace in public, you know, and, you know, they're actually getting down and bowing down to the floor, you know, so... Yeah, I mean, there's something to that in the marking the day. But Christians, it was supposed to be like that for us, you know. And that's part of why morning and evening prayer was supposed to be normative for the laity. It's common prayer. It's for the commoner, you know. And so, uh, so anyway. Then um, 39 article number 8 of the creeds. And this is interesting in relating the 39 articles as one of the Anglican formularies to the scripture. It says, of the creeds, the Nicene Creed, and that which is commonly called the Apostles' Creed, ought thoroughly to be received and believed. 
for they may be proved by most certain warrants of Holy Scripture. So what, what does that do? It says that we accept the creeds not only because they're Catholic, but because they're what? Right. In other words, we accept these ultimately, even the creeds have to be under the authority of the Bible. Now, in some ways, it's reciprocal. The creeds help us to comprehend the God of the Old and New Testament, right? When we read them. So there is a Catholicity there that these creeds help us to interpret Holy Scripture. But ultimately, they are still as important as the creeds are. Their authority is derived from Scripture and not the other way around. They may help us to interpret Scripture, but they don't give authority to Scripture. Scripture gives authority to them. Okay, so that's important regarding the 39 articles. Any last questions before we take a two-minute break and then we'll come back for the next formulary? Okay. Yeah, what, what about that one? Well, what is, what is that? What are the canon A5? Is there A4, A3, A4? Yeah, 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 yeah. It's the canons of the church. Oh, I mean, probably. I haven't looked at English canon law, but we have canons. Our bylaws are a form of canon at the parish level. Then there's diocesan canons, and then there's provincial canons. So these are particular to the church and the parish? Yes, but uh, that particular articulation has really been received by Orthodox Anglicans throughout the world as stating our faith. Yeah, yeah, that particular statement, whether it's Canon A5 or Canon 62, it's the content that really has given voice to the position of modern-day small-o Orthodox Anglicans, uh, that our movement, for example, uh, we belong to something called the... Um, CA. We pray for it every week. Federation of Confessing Anglicans. Fellowship of Confessing Anglicans. We pray for it every week. The Fellowship of Confessing Anglicans, which the ACNA belongs to, it's an Orthodox Anglican movement throughout the world, and it's grounded in the content of Canon A5. That this is our this is our stand. Scripture, tradition, the formularies. All right, let's take a two-minute break, and then we'll come back and go 